film about about a gay couple. So that's a nice a nice piece of it. And, and to segue to the misogyny. Soylent Green is people. It's people. Soylent oh, Green no. is people. <laughs> Soylent Green is indeed made out of people. Welcome to CanCon, your Canadian content space for conversations about cannibal films. And this week's film is Soylent Green. Uh, Zach, this is your first time. You hadn't seen the film before. Yeah, I think I maybe seen like a few minutes of it on TV, although watching it, none of it was especially familiar. I just remember the... At the Rogers video at uh, Queenston and and uh, Centennial in Hamilton, Ontario, for you Hamiltonites, uh, the Rogers video that was across from Eastgate Mall, they had like an old an old ass VHS copy of Soylent Green that had this amazing box cover art where it was like a painting of uh, all the people getting picked up in the scoops, which are essentially like bulldozer things. Yeah, and uh, it's a very. It looks like a, I don't know, like a Bruegel painting or something. Well, maybe we can reproduce it somewhere on the website for this episode. But it's it's a super cool kind of classic, very yeah, very dramatic, very grotesque VHS. Uh, kind of grabs your attention when you're a kid and you're relegated to you know renting the G-rated films, but you get to walk around and see all these salacious looking. Uh, uh, R or PG-13 rated films, although I was like a young adult by the time I saw the cover art, but it, it always struck me as like a, a throwback to the VH, the salacious VHS heydays. That's so funny. I don't think there's an experience quite like that for young people anymore, where like I remember going to uh, the convenience store slash VCR rental place or VHS rental place in the town I grew up in. And feeling like I was doing something mischievous because I would wander off and I would go into the horror aisle and see all of the um, all of the VHS covers and it would be like, ooh, blood and gore, ooh, sexy ladies were basically the drama. Yeah, the that was a big one. Me and my brother still talk about this. Just that kind of like haunting sense of like this window into like one day I will be able to watch these things. And I don't know if, like, with TV on demand now, like, I know when I was a kid, it was like, you'd be like, let's turn on the scrambled porn channel, you know, and, like, watch Static. But I don't know with stuff now if you could be like, I really want to see Ghoulies too, because, like, the cover has a friggin' goblin coming out of a toilet. It looks like <laughs> the most disturbing thing ever. Like, if you could... If, between the internet and streaming, I feel like, young people's access to films that are maybe whether warranted or not rated as being something that they are not allowed to watch yet. Um, I wonder if they have easier access to these things. Whereas with us, it was, I remember trying to rent like, I don't even remember, I think it was like Planet of the Dinosaurs or something. It was like PG-13 and they were like, well, are you here with your dad? And I'd be like, no. And it's like, I can't let you rent this. And I'd be like, for real? Like it's, you think anyone under the age of 10 is watching this trash? Like, it's a kid's movie, man. That's funny. I wonder if if it's, like, you don't know what you're missing kind of situation where, um... Like the grass I... is always greener kind of thing. Because when I would see these movies, I'd be like, this is so stupid. Like, I can't believe I waited 20 years to watch this. <laughs> okay, we're off topic. But, um, you... We should get on topic so people don't turn off their <laughs> recording, uh, turn off their podcast, because really, what is this? This is not what I'm expecting. Um, Zach brought up something that is important that I totally forgot, which is we have a website. I'll put the website address in the show description. And the main thing that you can get at the website is we have full transcripts of all of the episodes. So you can expect to find those now. Um, Zach, you hadn't seen this film before. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I have been waiting to make the joke, but now it, it's not going to be a joke because I've prefaced it by being a joke, but it's 
ironically, we were going to watch Soylent Green on our Cannibal podcast, and then the twist at the end is that it's made out of people. Like, <laughs> who would have... Yeah, no, I just, like most people, I think I know about this movie because of its infamous uh, twist at the end, which I don't think, I'm sure at some point in my life, I knew that that was actually the very end, that we get the twist, and then it's essentially like, you know, pull the curtain, like, we're done. Uh, But it's like, man, when you find out that stuff is made out of people, it's like, we can't get out of this thing fast enough. It's like, they just... They're rolling the credits, they're wheeling Charlton Heston out in a stretcher, it's done. Yeah, and I I think it's a testament to how strong the movie is. Like, just as a film, like, the way that you get really immersed in, into, and drawn into the world, which is, I don't think there are many people who don't know the ending to this film that are, like, that would would be wanting to sit down and watch it. Like, it's not really a twist in in that way, Um, but the viewing experience we both kind of remarked on um just how yeah it was it's just a good film yeah it's way more sophisticated than i was expecting not to say that it's like a flawless masterpiece or anything but it's it's very well done and yeah it's like for a movie you know people always say like well i'm not gonna watch the sixth sense because i know how it ends so what's the point like this is one where i knew like the whole reason i was watching it is because i know how it ends, but it didn't say, so I was kind of like, Oh, okay. So I'll be sitting around. I know it's made out of people. Like they're going to be teasing it or whatever. They kind of just like fill it up with all this really interesting, like dystopian, like far right political horror show stuff. Um, and it's kind of like the, it's an afterthought what Soylent Green actually is. It's not like people are like, the, the narrative is really interesting that way. It's not like it's set up as a whodunit, like, we need to figure out what Soylent Green is. It's more like we need to figure out what this big government secret is. And then it's at the end we realize it's that they're making food out of corpses and feeding it back to people who are likely going to die soon themselves. Yeah, we. I have a, a comment in response to that, but I have to take a detour to get there because I was listening to... Oh, this is going to tell the audience, like, a lot of stuff about us, about what kind of people we are, um, in a very brief little clip, that's fine. I was listening to a CBC interview with M. Night Shyamalan in the car while driving home from roller derby practice, just... Like, like yesterday? No, 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 like, a couple weeks ago, oh. uh, and he was talking about The Sixth Sense, and that is when I realized that The Sixth Sense is an M. Night Shyamalan yeah, that's what made it. That's why he's so smug. He has that one big success he can always wave in people's faces. I like The Village, too, but... Yeah, I don't like The Village. I, I like Signs a lot. That's a fun movie. Signs is M. Night Shyamalan? Yeah. See, uh, that's a good movie. Maybe that's That's one that gets unfairly criticized. Maybe our next podcast is just an M. Night Shyamalan fan cast. We'll find the clip where he's like, oh, yeah, people don't like my movies now. Well, maybe that's because I'm going to different restaurants than them, and people say this is the wine you should drink, and I'll be like, "Oh, I like this wine." So, and that's just like, "Oh man, like, <laughs> come, like, come on, <laughs> you know, like, take some responsibility for the fact that your movies radically got less popular after like you kind of shifted tone." Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> but that's that's. that's... that's, that's Another story for another day. He must have a cannibal film, though. We'll get him on here. Well, I'll I'll do some digging later. Um, but let's talk about Toilet Green some more. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting is we have our main character, who is a cop, um, who basically, like, incidentally uncovers this. Like, there's a murder, and he's investigating the murder, and it's through the investigation of the murder, which his... Uh, his boss has basically told him to drop it. Um, it's, it's political instigation that it's like the mayor tells him, tells the, the senator uh, who's like, shut this investigation down, something along those lines. But yeah, and he's just, he's just attached to it. He just can't put it away. And it's through his investigation that um, that we come to learn the secret that Soylent Green is in fact people. Um, let's talk about the setting. Let's break it down for, for people who haven't seen the film um, or haven't seen it in a long time. It is set in 2022. Yeah, and it's like everyone's wearing surgical masks and there's smog and like there's like people leaving their dead out like you'd see in like Monty Python or something. Like it's like medieval times. People are picking up the dead in wagons. 
It's like there's so much COVID shit in this movie. It's super weird. Yeah, I think it would have been. I guess we just we have a new lens on it, being how time moves forward. Um, yeah. In twenty twenty three, watching it, um, for the podcast. But yeah, it's set in twenty twenty two. All the plague stuff. Uh, the premise is that the driving force behind. Um, the kind of societal collapse that the people in the film are living through and adapting to is overpopulation. So the city of New York, which is where it is set, is uh, has a population of 40 million people. Uh, I, while we were watching, looked up the population of New York City currently, and it is about ha- just over half of that. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the starting premise is the year is 2022. Um, and due to overpopulation, the world is um, dirty and smoggy, and there is basically no natural farmland left. There are um, the food, pro- very, I shouldn't say the food production system, because it's like multiple intersecting systems, but food production and distribution systems have more or less uh, shut down, and what is has risen up in their place is the uh, system for producing and distributing this product called Soylent. Um, there are different colors of Soylent. Presumably they have different flavors. So there's, we hear about Soylent red and Soylent yellow. They tie, they also, uh, around the very beginning mentioned that it's primarily made out of plankton, but that we're running out of plankton. So more timely things as far as like humanity, draining the sea of every last edible resource. Well, that's part of the twist, right? Is that um, the oceans are dying, we're running out of plankton, and that's why Soylent Green is made out of people. Yes. Because the the whole thing, Soylent Green is new, um, relatively new. Uh, Tuesday is Soylent Green Day, if anybody is, is wondering. That's the day when Soylent Green gets delivered to the marketplace, um, and the idea is that Soylent Green is green because it's made out of plankton, is, is the story. Um, yeah. It uh, also harkens to the uh, eternal Seinfeld line, the ocean called, it's running out of shrimp. <laughs> and in this case, it's running out of plankton. Uh, I was going to say, but as far as the overpopulation concept is really well explored in the movie, not so much in any kind of like context or analysis we get, but just like, Every shot of this movie that's not in one of the bougie rooms, like that, allows you to escape the squalor of the general populace. It's like every corner of every frame is packed with extras. Like there's just so many people pushing for space, crowding around. And I had to just, I wanted to confirm before I say this on the podcast that the horribly uncatchy title of the novel that Soylent Green was based on by Harry Harrison, which is a weird name too is Make Room, Make Room, with an exclamation mark. So you can see why they renamed it Soylent Green, because Make Room, Make Room is like a really kind of weird, cumbersome title. And it's funny because I remember that being the name of the source material, and as a kid thinking like, I can't see this movie, Make Room, Make Room, and now it's Soylent Green, sounds so dumb. And at the end of the movie, I cracked up because it was like based on the novel by Harry Harrison, but it didn't say based on the novel. Make like they were already you couldn't even say it. They were already stepping back from like taking a walk from Make Room, Make Room. Like I'm sure that they reissued that book under the title Soil and Green. I it, it's so interesting. I have I I realized something about myself when you were saying that, which is I would read a novel called Make Room, Make Room. I would way more prefer to read a short story called Make Room, Make Room, and I would not see a film called Make Room, Make Room. (laughs) Well, I mean, sometimes it makes perfect... I mean, this is a case where it makes perfect sense. And the other one, not to, again, get on a detour, but as many people know that Slumdog Millionaire is based on a novel called (laughs) Q&A. Really? Yeah. I bought a copy... This is... They retitled it. Yeah, they always retitle them. I I bought a copy... We have a copy somewhere, and it is titled... Um, yeah. Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. Just so catchy. You can also now buy a novel that is titled, oh my goodness, so the film is titled Push. Oh yeah. The film is titled. The film is titled Push based on the novel by Satire, or Sapphire. Precious. Precious. Based on the novel Push. 
by Sapphire. By Sap, precious based on the my goodness, precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. And you can also, I know this because I own a copy of the novel titled like Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. And that guy's a repeat offender too because I'm sure he wanted to make the full title Lee Daniels's Precious based on the novel Push by but when he did the butler, he called it Lee Daniels is the butler. But like the apostrophe after the S is so small on a poster that I think most people assume that it was called like Lee Daniels, the, the butler. butler. <laughs> uh, this one's on topic though, is that it's funny because it's like we're talking about cannibalism. The one case where they blew it, and I honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. No, no, this is about another film novel. Another too, film it's novel. about cannibalism. Okay. It's just that I think the the film The 13th Warrior, which bombed for a lot of reasons, but primarily I think it bombed because The 13th Warrior is such a lame, unspecific title, and it's based on the Michael Crichton novel, The Eaters of the Dead. Which <gasps> I would go see that movie! That sounds so much better. It's about Vikings who ate the dead. And it's like, when I used to see the book Eaters of the Dead, my dad was a Crichton fan, because that's like what boomers read. I was like, Dad, you've read all of them. When are you going to read Eaters of the Dead? And he'd be like, oh, I'm going to read it. And he read it, and then the movie came out, and we were like, The 13th Warrior. Like, that's so stupid. Like, The Eaters of the Dead is such a cool title. Yeah. I don't remember. I saw the movie. I don't remember anyone eating anyone in it, so I don't know if we can review it for the podcast. When we get enough of a listenership, I want to do a whole season where we do book to film, um, where one of us reads the book and one of us watches the film and we discuss it, because it's just, my brain is nerdy like that. Um. Yeah, overpopulation. Let's come back to welcome to what it's like living inside the brain of an ADHD person, um, because that is that is how this conversation is looping. So hopefully, well, and someone who's obsessed with minutia and trivia and likes to make lists of things. Yeah, we make a good, yeah. we make a good pair. Um, yeah, the the overpopulation I think is is so interesting because it's really present as a theme in the film, but isn't. I get, I like the, I, I guess the population is flagged up front, so I get, like it's it's not they're not trying to hide that it's a theme. Like they they lay it out for you, well, but you it's, see that there's no housing, and the lead character and his friend Saul are like two grown men living together in this tiny room, which ironically is probably the case for many people living in New York these days. But and his husband Saul, we'll talk about. We'll yeah. to get to that dynamic. Yeah. So there's. A number of scenes that I think we usually, like, wouldn't get a scene of someone just, like, coming and going from their home, like, just walking up the stairs of an apartment building unless there was some other, like, plot or character development happening, like, in the hallway um, of the building. Like, it's not the... It's 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 not doing storytelling work except to develop and build the world, which is something that this film is really, really interested in. And so we get a number of scenes of uh, the main character, whose name is Detective Thorne, and they just call him Thorne uh, often. Um, presumably that's his last name, but that's what we're going to call him. Uh, Thorne just, like, walking up and down the stairs, and they're just littered with people just sleeping kind of on top of one another, and he has to... Um, like kind of step carefully through them in order to get home. Yeah, it's actually it's interesting because it uh, the only like other visual like that I can think of is in another. The speaking of cannibals is in the Dahmer uh, miniseries where the people are all sleeping in the hallway because they don't want to be alone in their rooms. Yeah, that's a. Um, but yeah, it's just a very like ominous, dark kind of like the people, and we do later see bodies like lying, like left out for garbage pickup in the street. So it kind of like already is this eerie feeling of like, uh, you know, like, uh, just mass deaths and like the, the widespread poverty and squalor and just the instability of life in this dark version of 2022. Yeah, I, I think we, oh, there's so many good things to talk about in this film. We should talk about how the, the film is really thinking about, like, it's thinking, it's thinking pretty hard about death, um, and it's built a society that, like, on the one hand, kind of worships death, like, as an act, um, but has abandoned the human kind of parts of, of death and dying. 
Well, it's interesting, yeah, because it's like it's valorized death as a way of making room for other people, all, other already existent people in this overcrowded world in the idea that, like, we're going to give you a very comfortable, very luxurious death. But it's not it's not like a uh, like a pro-life stance where they're also encouraging birth like they just we need less people is essentially where the state has landed in this future yeah and there is so so the death scene in this film is quite famous if you haven't seen the film and you're interested in seeing the death scene you can find it just kind of standalone um on youtube quite easily um there's a fun parody of the death scene on the simpsons if you just google silent green death scene um, so Saul, and, and it's called Going Home, so there's, like, again, like, a bit of a, like, framing around it that makes it kind of seem, um, it makes it seem, it's it's a very different experience from, like, we also see a, a, a deceased woman whose body has been left on the street with her child tied to her, right? Like, left, like, she's essentially taken her child to, um, to the steps in front of this church building that has uh, is is serving as housing and medical care and it's responding to um poverty it's responding to all of the crises that have manifested due to overpopulation she's essentially taken herself there uh attached herself to her child um so that her child will be found and taken care of by the people inside the church after she's died so she's gone to the stairs of the church to die um, Saul gets to access uh, a very, very different death experience. And it's not very clear to me um, what the difference in, like, why their death experiences are so different. Like, I don't know if it's something about because she has reproduced, this is her lot, and Saul doesn't seem to have children. So he has, a, it's a very unclear. If maybe she, her death. Yeah, if it was slightly less anticipated, like where she was just like, I have enough time to get to the church and pass out, essentially, it's hard or, to yeah, say. Yeah, or because she she wants her child to be found, whereas going to the the euthanasia, or med- medically, yeah, medically assisted dying space is, is maybe, like, she doesn't know what would happen to her child in, in a case like that. Maybe um, just against it on some kind of ethical grounds. There's probably a lot of different ways you could... Yeah, I mean, we live in, we're in 2023 right now, and the debate on, obviously a very different context, but the conversation about medically assisted, uh, med- medical assistance in dying is um, not resolved. Not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, but do you want to describe the, the death scene? Yeah, it's, I mean, it looks almost like, they've converted uh like a sports arena into this medically assisted dying clinic um we were saying it actually looks like uh in a lot of bigger cities you'll see different kinds of big public institutions converted into uh uh covid vaccine distribution clinics like it it has that kind of like makeshift quality except in this case it's clearly like it's just the space is very different from the the squalor and like the, just the overrun population of the world where now you're greeted by a friendly face and with gentle doctors and you state your preferences in terms of favorite color type of music you like. And then you're led into a room where you're given, you know, the hemlock as it were, like they, I think they give you some kind of drink. Yeah. It's in a fancy goblet. Yeah. It's like right out of uh, Socrates. Socrates drinks the hemlock? Socrates drinks the hemlock. Awesome. Not before giving a long speech, though. Yeah, I mean, this. it seems like, I hope he's not in any, Saul's not in any pain, because it takes a long time for this dude to pass on, but he's having a pretty good time. He gets to see, you're in like an IMAX theater. Jocelyn made that observation when we were watching it. It's like a wraparound screen. It predicts the IMAX experience, basically. Yeah. This film does. And, and, uh... Maybe that's what the building is supposed to be. Like, it's supposed to be an old movie theater that they've converted into the clinic. Maybe. In any event, um, Saul gets to lie on the bed and watch, like, all these things that he's old enough. This is a kind of a key thing, too. He's old enough to remember some of them from, like, IRL before the downfall of society. 
and uh, Thorne, Charlton Heston, comes to try to, like, intervene and convince Saul not to die, but he, in the process, because the pro, like, it's already started, so the doctors are like, well, you can look through the window and communicate with them, but we can't let you in there. And uh, Thorne sees these images that are just, like, pages out of a history book or, you know, tall tales or folklore to him, and he's deeply, deeply moved. Suddenly he sees that there was this whole world before uh, the dystopian, smog-filled, overpopulated world that Soylent Green exists as, which is interesting because there's a a big part of the story is that he's, as a like a blue-collar policeman, through his investigation, is gaining access to this whole kind of like bourgeois underworld of like high-end sex work and like like designer lofts where you don't have to deal with any of the, you know, the filth and the grime of the proletariat. And he's enticed by some of that, but he doesn't, it speaks to like the artificiality of that, like that, like capitalist bougie domain versus like the scenes of nature and sunsets and deer in the forest that he sees on the screen during Saul's death. Like that's what, eventually gets a really visceral reaction from him, not luxury, but like nature. Yeah. It's, it's a heartbreaking, a heartbreaking uh, scene. It's really effectively done. My memory of that scene, I first watched this film as a teenager and I didn't really like it. Um, And I think I just, it's probably the undiagnosed and untreated ADHD that I felt like I was like, the length of a film is hard. Sometimes you have, it has to be, uh, you really have to be in a mindset to accept that you are going to sit still for at least an hour and a half. It's Other- a very chatty film, too. Yeah. For a sci-fi, like a, a, a dystopian future sci-fi, like, it's it's a lot of, like, talk and build-up. There's not a whole lot of action sequences. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and then you get this this scene, which is very still and quiet and very moving, um, and and the interior space of this facility. So you said doctors. I think that they're made up to be like um, because they're they're wearing these robes. They're white robes with gold, um, and I think they're supposed to be like the new mar- modern like a religious like religion. Like these sure. are the priests of death, essentially welcoming you into uh, out of the world, as it were, rather than than into something else necessarily. Um, the space is enormous. So this the space in the lobby of the building when Saul is waiting in line is huge. It's open. It's spacious. It's done up in a very minimalist way um, to kind of really highlight the spaciousness. And his moment in this chamber, this enormous kind of IMAX experience where there's beautiful music and um, this footage playing is it, I mean, it's, it seems like a nice way to go. Like, right. But it's comforting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like in the context of this world might be the only moment of privacy a person ever has. Yeah. I commented on that. It's interesting that, um, given the horrible conditions of this world, like that when we see into that space where people are coming to like to to die on their own volition, it's not it's not crowded in there. Like there's no lineups, like it seems like this is still an unpopular choice for whatever reason. And that I guess is like to the benefit of the the process because you're there it doesn't feel institutionalized overly it doesn't feel like you know you're in a factory farm going to be like put down to harken back to texas chainsaw massacre it's like this is you're there and it's quiet and no one's there to disturb you it's you know yeah and and that's in really high contrast to the way that the rest of the dead are treated so soylent green is people that's how the rest of the dead are treated but Zach, do you want to talk about the the filmic depiction of like you've already talked about the um tell me more about the scoops. Yeah, I was gonna say how about how they treat the living too, because the scoops uh are like essentially there's a few different things in the film, and this is like you see this in a lot of sci-fi, but it's done to good ends here where like 
things that are left over from when society was more uh, affluent or, you know, functioning at a higher degree or whatever you want to call it. Like the riot squad have old converted football helmets that, you know, there's no use for recreational sports anymore in this world. So the football helmets are now worn by the riot squad. And presumably construction has stopped due to overcrowding. So we see these kind of converted bulldozers into what they call scoops that are used as riot control. When the crowds get completely out of hand and they come and they pick up people as they kind of struggle and writhe and just throw them into the back of the truck like a garbage pickup. And I I think if I watched that as a kid, that would be like the most disturbing aspect of the whole thing because we don't see like they're still alive when they go in it's not explicit that they're going straight to the soil and green factory but it's completely plausible in the world where like human life has been this devalued um and even if they're just going to like be incarcerated like you know something about not knowing and not even knowing if like they're breaking their limbs when they land in the back of the truck is this thing just full of like dying and wounded people it's a really grim scene of like and kind of, it's funny because Charlton Heston was so closely involved with the Reagan administration, but like it really feels like a commentary on the rise of Reaganomics in the decade to follow this film and just like the processing of death and of human bodies as a, you know, as like an economic function rather than as a humanitarian concern. And it, it makes lots of sense. Like this film, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, is right uh, comes right on the heels of the the oil crisis in the seventies, where overpopulation, um, overpopulation, and also like the political world kind of together are are part of the conversation. Um, Resource like lack yeah. of resources is a big concern. Yeah, we're in we're gearing up for a, a turn into neoliberalism at that time. I think. So, um, yeah, and I, I think you're right, Zach, and it's, it's haunting. Um, it's combined with, like, seeing trucks, like, the way that Thorne learns that Soylent Green is people, right? So there's a report that's not supposed to exist that Saul gets his hands on, and, and or Thorne gifts to Saul after um, investigating the death the first time. So he goes in and he, he, into, um, the home of this man who's like a high up in Soylent, the Soylent Corporation, uh, which owns like all of the food production for humanity and also seems to own all of the natural resources. So, um, it's this huge kind of, um, corporate conglomerate, I guess. And so he's investigating the murder of this guy who's high up in the company um, is it a murder? Is it a suicide? Like it's it's a murder, but it, the it, it's with a willing willingly. victim. Yeah. yeah, he says something about like it's this is for the. Not he doesn't say it for the good of mankind, but he says something about like I know I need to die for. Essentially, he's he's accepting his really brutal violent murder. He gets like beat to death with like essentially like a meat hook kind of thing. Yeah, he says it's for God. God, I was going to say isn't it something like faith-based? Yeah. yeah. Which is weird cuz they don't invoke religion much, at least not explicitly for the remainder of the film just in that early very early scene. Yeah. Um and well, the church. Oh, well, and yeah, that's true. I yeah, absolutely the church and uh Saul makes various references to his like uh, Jewish background. So it's during the investigation that Thorne starts um, getting access to, uh, as Zachary already mentioned, the kind of bourgeois privileges. So things like he gets a bottle of whiskey and he he's he's a he's a corrupt cop right he's a crook like he, he, <laughs> i was gonna say he's not trying to solve this murder for like the first 20 minutes he's like just like i gotta hang around this case because i'm stealing this guy's rum and his or whatever yeah, his whiskey and his beef yeah so it's in the investigation that he meets Cheryl, whose name is spelt in a kind of bananas way, S-H-A. No, S-H-I-R-L. Cheryl. But it is pronounced Cheryl. Future folks, signposts, even though we never see it written anywhere until the end credits. 
Yeah, weird, weird ass names. Everyone wears beige or like khaki colors. Even like as a policeman, when he's not in riot gear, Thorne wears like a painter's cap. Like he looks like uh, like he's in like a a prison chain gang or something. Yeah, there is a scene with so there's the guy who's high up in Soylent. There's Cheryl who is classed as something called furniture. We'll talk about that in just a minute because it's important kind of to the world of the film and how um, patriarchy is also one of the um, forces of violence that have produced this world. Um, But there's the guy who's high up in Soylent whose name neither of us have bothered to remember. There's Cheryl who's furniture and there is a third man who is the bodyguard, um, and he and Charlton Heston look too much alike. Way too much alike. And there's a scene where they put a hat on one of them, clearly as a way to be like, don't forget who's wearing... Especially when, like, some of their action sequences are in these, like, incredibly crowded cityscapes where there's people all over, and predominantly, like, a lot of white men were cast as extras in this movie, so... And they're all dressed very similar. Some of them are in masks. Like, it seems like a recipe for confusion. Yeah, 100%. Um, so in the pilfering, some of the things that Thorne takes are the whiskey. He takes the books because Saul, who is uh, a librarian, is his title. Um, he does research of various kinds to aid Thorne in Thorne's various... Um, uh, excuse me, in Thorne's various investigations um so he takes the books and he also takes the groceries that cheryl had purchased planning on making her um like what is their really her they discuss it as an employment relationship so to some degree he's her employer or like her boss but she seems to have a real affection for him yeah and when he gets murdered and they start talking about having a new tenant rent the room like Part of her role as furniture is that she'll remain... I'm doing scare quote, air quotes there. Uh, part of it is that she'll remain uh, in the room, like, with the new tenant. So she, she gets comes- really apprehensive about who this new tenant's going to be. And by then, her and Thorne are starting to have a relationship. So she kind of would rather stay with Thorne. Yeah, she comes with the apartment, which... Yeah, we'll, we'll come back it's to that. It's a pretty dark dark world it's yeah you can say that again um it's it's funny to me so what is funny to me is so in these books is the evidence that the oceans are dying and the plankton is dying and this is the solution offered up by the soylent corporation is to turn the dead into soylent green as a means of food supply um but saul is like, so Saul has this knowledge first. Um, Thorne learns the knowledge that Soylent Green is people from Saul as Saul is literally on his deathbed. So Thorne, um, as he's kind of looking over Saul's shoulder, um, as he's kind of looking over Saul's shoulder during the death sequence, they have a conversation and Saul says, basically, you have to tell them, you have to make it. Uh, you have to find evidence. Uh, and this is how Saul, or excuse me, Thorne, um, comes to know in the, like, truly knowing that Soylent Green is people. So he hitches a ride on the truck that is taking Saul's body um, and other bodies of people who have chosen medical assistance in dying. Um, and he follows them to the Soylent plant, and he breaks into the plant, and he sees the bodies. Like, they really spell it out. They make it very, very clear what's happening. There's very little that's... I mean, there's there are parts that are implied, for sure, but we see the bodies go into one part of the machinery in this huge factory, into this big vat, and we see Soylent Green come out another. It's really graphic, too. Like, you just see... They're wrapped up in, like, white sheets like shrouds but you just see all these bodies coming down a conveyor belt and this comes out in what 73 we said yeah so it's like it's close enough to when knowledge of the concentration camps is reaching america that like i have to think that especially like saul being an explicitly jewish character and played by edward g robinson like there's like pretty clear 
parallels there, I think, to like the manufacturing of mass death and processing of human bodies. And it's, it's really uh, grim stuff. Yeah. And the absence of, um, the absence of a ritual around death. So Saul gets to have a very nice death where he gets this very private ritual, um, that is again, like in this big space and he gets that private moment. Um, but I, I think it's Cheryl who says, who talks about, uh, when her, her employer is murdered, she kind of asks like, where will his body go? And they say, well, they'll take him to, uh, the, I think it's a recycling plant or something they said. I think, yeah, there it's, it's very industrial. They'll take him to X plant outside of the city. Processing. Or X. It's some kind of, yeah, like very industrialized term that could really denote anything. Yeah. And in her kind of shock at the moment, she speaks aloud a memory about when her grandmother died. She says, we'd had a little ceremony. Um, and it just becomes clear that like, like a funeral or a celebration of life or a memorial gathering or um, any of the, you know, there's a huge diversity of how different people groups in our beautiful various cultures celebrate people's lives at the end of them, remember them in death, um, ritualize, mark dying as an important event, right? As, as, I mean, if we think of dying as a verb, our last act on Earth, right? So th- so all of that has been completely stripped away. Yes. And uh, Cheryl's description of it is kind of met with, like, not just, not so much disbelief, but if I remember right, th- is it Thorne she's describing it to? And he's kind of just like, oh, that sounds real nice. Like, kind of rolling like his nonchalance eye. or, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, we, it's, there's, it's a pretty macho movie. It's kind of like, oh, we don't got time for that, you know? Yeah, and and that's part of the Thorn and Saul being kind of two very different characters who balance each other, where Saul is, like, yearning for the things of the past. I think Saul would, Saul doesn't hear that comment because he's not in the investigation, but I think he would respond with lots of empathy. Oh, yeah, he just wants to feel the sea breeze on his face one more time, as it were. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's so sad, Zach. Um... It's just very funny to me. Like, this this occurred to me a day after watching the film, um, is that. So as, as Thorne is gathering his evidence, his eyewitness account of the factory and so on, he's being tailed by um, the bodyguard and by other folks who are, like, literally just shooting at him in the street, trying to kill him because he has this evidence. But the evidence was in the books, yeah, I actually, it felt, we don't want to, like, spend too much time, like, criticizing, like, story no, problems, it just, but it was, it was, it just, it's weird to me I've that been it's, thinking about it. Yeah, I was even thinking, because Saul takes, he goes to this, like, library where there's these, like, four. Did they confiscate the books, perhaps? I thought they were, like, confirming details or interpreting it or something, because he seems to go there, like, I need you to take a look at this, and then he's so devastated by discovering that Soylent Green is made of people, he goes ahead and consents to his own assisted death. But, like, these other archivists or librarians or, like, these learned, wizened, old, gray-haired figures are just kind of like, next. You know, like, they don't seem to really care. It's a very confusing way of, like, paying off all of the, like, espionage and conspiracy theories and then, like, getting to the horrific twist at the end. Like, it just feels, it feels very pat. Yeah, I bet Thorne can't read. I bet that's part, I bet literacy, because all of the people, I bet there's clues to it in the film. Also. Now, now I'm doing weird, like, headcanon stuff, um, <laughs> which is, like, not what we were setting out to do. But one of the things that's, that's distinct about all of the people in that room is they're very old. They're very old. Yeah, yeah. I was just looking up the cast, and they have, like, you know, it's like photos that are their like Wikipedia page photo for each cast member. So it's usually like them at their most iconic role. And I'm seeing these photos of people that look like they were taken in like sepia tone. Like they're from like 1910. And then they're listed as book number one, book number two. So those people are actually referred to as books, I guess. Weird. I but guess they hold carriers I, of information and knowledge, but... I guess so. But they were, yeah, the, the casting of them, it was like looked like they were casting people who had their heyday in, like, the early sound picture era. That's funny. 
Um, there's three things I want to make sure we talk about. Yeah, I have one I want to make sure I talk yeah. about, too. So. Uh, I want to talk about Saul and Thorne's relationship. I'm going to talk about uh, Cheryl and misogyny in the film. And I think the film is trying to do a really good thing, and I think it fails a little bit. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. And I want to talk about how much people love Soylent Green and how that's <laughs> its own commentary. Uh, Let's do it. We yeah. Go ahead. start with Saul and... Just, there's a lot to talk about there, and we want to keep it as, you know, we're reaching the time limit here, so we'll try to be brief, but Saul and Thorne are, like, a married couple. Yeah, like, we don't know that they are married, but they behave. Like, it's it was so striking. Um, like, they're clearly a queer couple. They live together. Um, Saul, when Thorne steals the groceries during the investigation, there's this just, it's so domestic and loving. It's not just like, yeah, cool, I'll cook you this stuff. You've never tasted this before, huh? Like, oh, man, it's going to knock your socks off. It's like, sit down, like, let me cook for you. And there's like multiple scenes. I, I Maybe I'm just misremembering. I feel like there's at least twice where one or the other character is like feeding the other with a wooden spoon. Like, it's extremely... You could say that maybe it's parentified, like that Thorne has become Saul's, like, son or caretaker, but it feels very romantic. It feels very romantic. Very sweet. Um, it is one of the, the gems in this film, I think, is that their relationship is this unstated but clearly very beautiful, loving one. Um, one of the places that, that you pointed it out, Zach, was when... Thorne is leaving, and he says to Saul, like, don't forget to go and get the water. Yeah, he has, they have errands to do together. And it's, yeah. It's it's, like, don't forget to pick up the dry cleaning. Like, it's very intimate. Yeah, even, like, Thorne brings the books for Saul because he he doesn't give a shit about books of any kind. He's kind of mocking. Even the fancy stuff he got, like, he's not, like check this out, like, this is the finest bourbon, like, I can't, he's just sort of like, look at this, hey, 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 you know? Yeah. And then Saul's like, oh, my dear, you know, like, he's losing it, because he, but, but part of that is because, like, Saul knows, he lived through the era of having access to Maker's Mark instead of salt water. And, yeah, and um, I think their apartment is filled with books, like, floor-to-ceiling filled with books, um, and it's very clear that Saul, being the librarian, sees them as, like, objects with a function, but Thorne sees them as, like, wallpaper, I think. So yeah. he, but But he, he, I would even say, loves Saul's um, connection with books. And so he doesn't really know why any book would be important, but he lovingly bestows this gift on his, I'm just going to say, partner. Yeah, well, it's in it. they don't have any living space, but it's not like Thorne is like, Saul, we got to get rid of these books, buddy. Like, he's like, of course, this is your, yeah. pardon me, your um, passion. The other one is when, so they, um, you, you create your own electricity by uh, riding a bicycle, which is, um, hooked up to a generator or something. It's so. It's also in. I can think of at least one other film, like a short. I think it's a Nigerian filmmaker, uh, a short sci-fi film called Pumzi, in which there's also like kinetic energy is generated, um, a similar way. Like it feels like a trope to me. Um, I feel like in one of the Honey I Shrunk the Kids movies, there's something like yeah. that where he's like riding a bike or like on a treadmill or something to generate energy. I think I think you're right. Um, and anyway, Saul is like, I'm going to get on the bike and generate some energy after the power kind of falters. This is early in the film, kind of establishing their relationship. And Thorne is like, you're going to hurt yourself. You'll take a heart attack. Like, I'll do that later. It's like one of the first kind of cues to their to their intimacy. So this is a film about about a gay couple. So that's a nice a nice piece of it. And to segue to the misogyny, but to further speak to like the queer reading of the film. There's a scene where, um, like, I think he's kind of playing hard to get is the idea, but Thorne is alone with Cheryl in, like, the super fancy secluded apartment. And he's like, oh, I gotta go, I gotta work. And Cheryl says something about, oh, why don't you stay here with me? And he says something like, there's nothing, I have nothing to offer you, is what he says. And I think it's implied that because she's used to this extravagant lifestyle, he means money. But, like, all of their, it's a pretty sleazy movie in a lot of ways, but all of their, like, 
romantic scenes together. Like, even when Thorn is naked, he's usually, like, getting, like, finding an excuse to run out of the room or some comes up. Like, there's kind of a reading of it where when he says, I have nothing to offer you, he's either talking about impotency or that, like, he's in love with the lifestyle, but he's betrothed to another. Yeah, even to the way that that she convinces him to stay, like, there's a clear offer of sex. Like, it's implied, but it's it's very clear in the scene of access to her body. But he's like, that's not super appealing to me, essentially. And then she's like, you can have a hot shower and leave the water on as long as you want. eggs, right? She says something about eggs in the morning, breakfast, whatever you want. Yeah, and so it's the, yeah, it's the accoutrements um, of which she is one, right? So, like, she's she's part of the, the lifestyle of the, the rich and the famous in this world is being able to have furniture. These, these women who are um, quite literally made into property, although she does describe it as her job. And we see uh, the one kind of more generous scene is... Um while the apartment's unoccupied after the murder of the original tenant, like all of the furniture come together and are like having kind of just like a, like a schmoozy party. Like it kind of establishes that they do have lives independent of just giving like domestic chores and sexual favors to their employer. Yeah. That they, so, so yeah, let's talk about, about the way the film tries to critique misogyny and, my reading is fails. So there's these attempts to show, right? So clearly in a world where this is, this is part of the dystopia that a woman can come with the apartment. It's a handmaid's tale kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Cheryl mentions at one point, I forget what it's in response to, but she mentions that she wouldn't want to lose her job. So she feels she, she has an understanding of her life as furniture, as being, better than perhaps safer than certainly um, much more stable than what her life would be as a woman in the rest of the world. Right. So we see um, very low bar yeah. established that like it's, but nonetheless, she does get to live in this like very comfortable apartment and have access to real food and water and all of those, all of those outfits. I think she comments on like that. She, has nice clothing everybody else is kind of in burlap sacks and in a in a i don't know like sex work is work it is real work we want to not be dismissive of that there's lots of reasons women go into um people because not only women do sex work um there are lots and lots of reasons that people choose sex work i i think the film presents it sort of as a choice, but a choice that is, like, fundamentally has a degrading element to it, right? Because of of being classed, again, as furniture. And the lack of agency where she's going to be stuck with the next tenant regardless of whether they have any kind of chemistry or anything. But that's... I didn't even think of that. Like, that's a just to pick, like, an obvious touchstone. But, like, as opposed to something like The Handmaid's Tale where it's explicit that these people are... Like imprisoned, yeah, like yeah. from birth, essentially. Like this is, but with the furniture in the in soiling green, we have no, we don't have any reason to think one way or the other. But we're open to the interpretation that this is a career choice they've made because it is certainly preferable to being the mother with your kid tethered to you, dead in front of a church. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that. There are layers of the critique that are quite complex. Someone chooses this work, there are lots of benefits to it, and then it's forces of patriarchy that make it so demeaning. And um, and it, it really links up with, again, the critique of, like, what has made the world... Um, what has made the world like this? It's overpopulation. When we talk about it's uh, Soylent Green and how much people love it, it's something to do with... Um, some kind of failing on the part of humans. And it's also like the structure is so patriarchal and so demeaning to women that it gets, um, that it gets stated to us in such clear terms. Right. Um, I think that that's a positive thing that the film is trying to do. I personally think that the critique gets a little bit undone by some of the things, um, by some of the things that happen between Cheryl and Thorne. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a certain like, and I mean, this is 
whatever. They, this is like indicative of a lot of these types of films at that time, especially like the Charlton Heston's kind of the like archetype for like the cigar chomping macho man. But there's like, even though we're talking about scenes where he's kind of like, I don't want to have sex, but I'll have a hot shower. There's still like this feeling of it's like this conquest of his and that we're supposed to be kind of titillated at his pursuing it. And like the, the bravado with which he pursues Cheryl and uh, scenes that really have the opportunity to broaden the world of all these female characters fall short. There's a scene where I don't even know what his role is that Charlie, the, like the doorman. His name is just Charles. Charles. It's like Cher. And he comes in and he, he breaks up the party with all the women and he's saying, he tries to, he tries to, and he's like, ah, you, you know, you guys need to get back to work. We have, tenants you need to be pleasing or whatever you're breaking the rules and he starts like slapping them one at a time and then uh thorn comes in and he's just kind of like i think as the audience we're kind of invited to be like he's putting charles in his place like you don't hit women man that's bad but it just comes across as like one violent man very patronizingly and condescendingly like defending the honor of these women, but like he's not checking on them, right? Like it just feels like, well, and, and he hits the other woman. He beats he, the hell out of a woman in this movie. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. That so part's it's, it's really not bad. about. It's really just about him having friction with Charles. Territorial, and Charles is very like effeminate and kind of like I was saying that in uh, we've talked about since Hannibal Lecter this kind of trope of like the like nefarious dandy or like kind of ambiguously queer conniving villain. And Charles kind of has that motif where he's very like, you know, his hair's kind of done in like a perm. Like he's got the very kind of like Metro outfit and he's just this kind of sneaky sneering villain. Who's unlike the other men in the film is not interested in these women. Like he doesn't break into this room and is like, hey, you're all subservient to me. Like, you're literally furniture. I'm going to have some fun. He's like, get out of here. Get back to work, you know? Yeah, and he, it's it's when Charles comes in that he does come to their defense, right? He says, like, I called them here for an interview and an investigation. But, like, that that is true at the same time that everything else that you said is, is also true. Yeah. Um, the way that Cheryl... Laura Mulvey's essay on the male gaze comes out, like, the year before this film comes out. Um, which is super interesting because the female characters operate very similarly to the way that Mulvey critiques films, right? They serve to offer a moment of pause in, um, they are beautiful, the camera objectifies them, they are both shown and displayed, um, they are meant to be eye candy, they're meant to be an erotic object for both the audience members and the male characters in the film, um, and they also offer up space for a moment of pause in, um, the plot and in the life of the care of the, the male protagonist. It's, like, it's very, like, you could map Mulvey's <laughs> theory onto the film super duper well, which I think is kind of hilarious because you can, like, the critique that it's trying to make about the position of women in the world is excellent, right? And any time a text is speaking about the future, it's also speaking about its own present too. And so I want to kind of, I, I, I want to give credit for that, right? Like that's... I, it's trying. I mean, the other bad thing too is that the women are totally disposable. Like by the time we get to the climactic ending, like, no one's talking about, like, I don't even know what the, like, there's no closure with Cheryl. We don't know if she ever gets, like, in contact with Thorne again. Like, she's just a complete afterthought after we're so invested in her for a majority of the film. Yeah, and she, her character, again, there's this structural critique of the position of women in the world, but her character is like, a man you stay with me. I, I, I want to be with the, don't leave. I'm, and there's some, like, I, it's just, I don't find her attraction to Thorne very convincing. It's clearly, um, like we could, I, I guess there's space for a reading of her just being like alone and lonely and et cetera, but it's just, it's very clear that the, the 
folks behind the camera were like, how can we have a sexy scene with Cheryl? Right? There's a scene. It's almost hilarious. <laughs> I don't like, I think they're just like having expository dialogue and moving the plot along. And like midway through the scenes, Cheryl just starts undressing after leading Thorne into the bedroom. And I was kind of like, Oh, so there's going to be like no preamble. Like they're just going to already have a sexual relationship. Yeah, I could see a really, like, uh, reactionary reading by, you know, like, some kind of MRA reading that's like, look, Cheryl's been with this old man for so long, and now Thorne comes in, and he's this big, buff, young guy, and it's just like, but he's there, and he's, like, robbing her, and he's not nice to her, and he's telling her, like, during the investigation, he suspects her of the murder, and he's like, sit down, shut up, I'm gonna ask you questions, where were you, let me see your hands, like, it's, uh... Any kind of, like, attempt to rationalize her attraction to him is problematic at best and almost certainly dubious. Yeah, and it, it's it's like the... Uh, it feels like the filmmakers could see the system stuff, but but couldn't see, like... They could see the forest and not the trees, oh, and that essentially. Oh, brings me maybe on if you want to wrap up some of the point I wanted to get out before we're done is just outside of maybe like an Adam Sandler movie. I can't think of a film that has two more reprehensible people as its leads. You got Charlton Heston, the man who maybe more than anyone else in the history of America has set back gun control laws by his like positioning of the NRA and being the president of the NRA and being such a public face for that lobby. And then you have, Edward G. Robinson in his final role, he's finally getting work again after he ratted out all of his friends to the House of Un-American Activities so he could get off scot-free and all of his other commie actors could go to jail. So we got a, a, a rat, we got a rat, like a capitalist rat, and we got a gun nut. And there are heroes in this movie about how uh, corporate America has doomed civilization so maybe that accounts for some of the moral blind spots throughout the movie <laughs> absolutely um i want to just add a little bit to your comment about how thorn isn't nice to her he's also just not nice like he's not even nice to uh saul until he starts beating him there they have he's privately nice with saul which is why i i think that it's the central, like, romantic relationship and familial, like, familial it's relationship. the only gentleness in the movie, It's yeah. the only gentleness in the movie. Well, the priest, but he dies pretty quick. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, the priest. Oh, there's a priest. Okay. We don't like to keep it too much more than an hour because we respect that people have attention spans and things like that and you have busy things to do. But I do want to comment on um, the... The priest is such a touching character. So we see him. He's. We also get comments about space. All that he he describes his work as making space for people, um, and he is the first one of the first characters to know that Soylent Green is people. And just the performance of the way he just is shaken by it, um, and the way he he goes into this kind of shock, but continues doing his caring and loving work is really. Um, it's a, it's a, just a, an astounding, very brief little scene. Yeah. Well, and he's kind of become like the walking dead, like all the sick people around him where like the knowledge of Soylent Green and kind of knowing like we're trying to persevere in this society that's completely just collapsed in on itself. And like, I'm helping these people, you know, have some comfort before they die. And then he knows that after that, they're going to, you know, they're going to be turn into food and come back and he's going to have to feed all these starving people with like the remains of the people who have already died under his watch. Like, well, by the time you get to the end of the movie and you reflect back on how just mentally destroyed the priest is, you realize, um, you know, just the, the weight on his shoulders of what he's living with. And because of his profession, it, it, he finds out the knowledge through the confession booth. So it's very, um, yeah, it's dark stuff. Which that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That it the the film is, um, oh, we should. Mm, this is in the camp with Darren Aronofsky's mother. There's a theology. It's framed as a sin, right? Um, even as like in our episode on Alive, we talk about how the act of cannibalism is framed as being not quite a sacrament, but it's framed as being not sinful, right? Communion, the, wait for the body of Christ. 
Yeah, but yeah. it's it's we're not supposed to look down on the people who choose cannibalism as a last resort in order to try to live, right? That the act of of choosing to live is enough of a good in that film, right? Well, and the characters in Alive have the dignity of making the choice themselves, whereas in Soylent Green, they're just being fed all these little chiclets of uh, Soylent Green made out of people. Yeah, uh, and they love it. So Soylent Green is, like, selling out. People want more of it. There are um, a nice little touch uh, in the film is all these signs that are in this jaunty font that says Tuesday is Soylent Green Day with this perky exclamation point. Just the capitalist repackaging of dystopia as, hmm. um, as you know, not just normalizing way, but as a, this kind of cheerful expression. Um, yeah, what do you think it says, Zach, that, that people, like, I, it's a critique of, of humans, right? That, yeah, it, we should rename Black Friday Green Friday, because oh. it's when everybody's like, whoa, they're going to sell out of Soylent Green, I'm going to stomp this kid to death so I can get the Soylent Green. Yeah, and the framing, and the framing of Black Friday as being, like, a sport, like, capitalism is a sport, but also this, this justification about it so people will say we need black friday because how else will poor people have things and it's like oh can i tell you some things about how in a rich country do we even need to have poor people right never mind um be thinking about this weird destruction sport as a somehow a good that is offered to them by um, by the same system that oppresses them. Serving them death. That's another Reaganomics Serving thing. Yeah. 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 That's a strong, I thank you for your time. <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> and there, um, a couple of things. So I always forget to do the reminders of like, please like, and subscribe, tell your friends that really helps us find listeners. Um, we have two reviews and they are both five star reviews and whoever you find two people are who, um, hit those, hit the, hit the stars for us. We are uh, really thankful. So thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Ed. I would be remiss too. I just want to quickly mention in relation to Soiling Green that Brock Peters is in this movie. He plays the police chief. He's best known as Tom yeah. Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. If you're a film buff, like you've seen To Kill a Mockingbird and you know, what an incredible actor he was and just how few visible roles he got. If for nothing else, this movie's good. Every scene he's in, he's just like this pillar of strength. Like the guy was so good. You have to see the movie. If nothing else, just it's more Brock Peters content for people who uh, are seeking out all of those little scene Brock Peters roles. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and we'll sign off on that. Soylent Green is made of people. Come, people. come back next week. We're gonna. I think we're watching the trashiest movie we're ever gonna watch on this thing, Microwave Massacre. So, and I think, have you seen it? I saw it when I was in high school or something, maybe grade eight. Amazing. It's, it's, Speaking of VHS, this thing is pure junk, and it's gonna be awesome. Delicious. Delicious. All right. <laughs> have a great Easter weekend, everybody. <laughs>